Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The, the general conversation, and that is that what, what you get in modernity is a kind of reading of scripture, a flat historical critical reading. And so what obviously you're going back to the early church, that the way that you're reading scripture in origin is allegorical. What I referred to was a theological reading in which scripture then is set within the context, a larger context of the church. The thing that I found really interesting, Paul, and I I printed it up, was the chapter Clendon essay about uh, the Baptist vision as typological practice. I just found it really interesting because he's talking all about reading strategies for how we approach the the religious texts that are part of the Christian religion, so to speak. He talks a lot about typology. One of the chapter headings is rules for reading. How do we read the Bible? This is really kind of at the heart of the problem I think we have in, in Christianity, or in evangelical Christianity certainly, is is a, we, we read the Bible wrong, and this is the attack that the new atheists have done, is they've started to point out all the stuff in the Bible that is so sickening, really, when you take it at face value, and we haven't had a good answer for them. Mm-hmm. Back in 2011, David Bentley Hart did a, a lecture at Pepperdine University, and I think it's called the first naivete, or the second naivete, kind of riffing off of Paul Ricoeur. It's absolutely brilliant on how to read the Bible in a non-literal fashion. Between that and this essay, I was reading them both at the same time, I thought, look, God is loving, God is kind, God is fair, God isn't a mean ogre, and you got to stop reading your Bibles that way, or at least that's not what he's like, but mm-hmm. that message isn't getting home. Mm-hmm. So if I, read, if I just start reading the Bible and I hit Genesis 4, and here's Cain and Abel, and A, the fact they have to even offer sacrifices to God. Well, what kind of a God requires a need sacrifice? And then God's not happy with one of them. What kind of a God's not happy with, his, with people? You know, right from the get-go, you've got this distorted view of God. And so it's the Bible's fault, so to speak. You know, it's difficult. If you just pick it up as a book and read it, you would really come away thinking God's a real bastard. And you wouldn't want anything to do with him. I think Matt's going to jump in here and explain that this is not the normative approach in evangelicalism, or, or not just evangelicalism, it's just in modernity. We need to locate ourselves partly by the way we read the Bible, and that as liberals or fundamentalists, that the whole issue has revolved around the notion that we can either defend Scripture or there's a problem in Scripture, And so the whole liberal fundamentalist controversy is really a a controversy about the Bible. But what nobody Mm. pointed out was, well, yeah, but you're reading the Bible in a way that no, you know, certainly the early church fathers and certainly the New Testament, that you're reading the Bible in this kind of modernist notion in which the, the whole way that you're imagining that truth is conveyed to you is this propositional modernist understanding. And so the, this is probably, Tim, you and I came up through the, the church, and you know my education was more of a fundamentalist, conservative. And, Mine too. 
And so they explained why them liberals, you know, they're getting it all wrong. It's the same conversation on a modernist base. <laughs> if you trace back historical critical approaches or higher criticism, it's really of a fairly recent vintage, you know, and it is tra directly traceable to a Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Th this is something Gerhard Mayer, who was at Tübingen, Mayer was very conservative for being at Tübingen, but his point is, well, it doesn't really matter what side of this thing you're coming out on. It's all modernism, and it's a modernist notion of the way that truth is conveyed to us and focused peculiarly on Scripture. Once you, first of all, get that, oh, the whole controversy is a controversy that is unique to the period in which we live, <laughs> then I think you're open to a, what I would call a theological reading of Scripture, and that is that you're going to read it Christocentrically, so you're not going to read the story of Cain and Abel or any of those stories in isolation from the work of Christ. And so what you get in the early church fathers is they're going to go back and do what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus and say, well, this is actually about me, mm. and I'm at the center of this. And so my reading of the Old Testament following the early church is that to say, well, there is a theological significance to be had in the Old Testament, but that significance is only going to be revealed to us in Christ. Tim, I was kind of like at a point where I was ready to, like, I didn't know what to do with the Old Testament. I understand what Paul actually is saying, you know, about the New Testament. And, you know, I'm reading, at the time I was reading guys like N.T. Wright and, you know, doing the New Testament studies things, you know, James Dunn, you know, all those different guys. And, like, really, you know, Richard Hayes. And I needed to go through, I needed to do that work, right, and, and understand sort of the conversation. You know, once I started to realize that Jesus seemed to be antithetical oftentimes to the God in the Old Testament that was being revealed. It's like, well, he's saying things that are just like contrary, really, or, or whatever, to like things that are happening in the Old Testament. I mean, Jesus himself would say, you know, well, you heard it this, but I tell you, you know, and it's like he's, he's either changing the Bible or not, he's not changing the Bible, but he's cherry picking. He's, yeah, he's doing something to, you know, he's making interpretive decisions that are radically informed by his own mission. And honestly, I kind of started getting to the point, and it was Joshua that did it. You know, I was like, I don't have any use for this. You know, I said, this is like a, you know, a, a text about genocide. It's like, I, I don't understand how this fits in at all with the teachings of Jesus. I just don't get it. And, and not just Joshua, but all sorts of stuff in the Old Testament. I was going, I don't understand. You know, this doesn't fit in with Christianity. I remember taking Paul, you know, Axton's classes. It might have been after I was already gone, but we had talked about how David wants to talk a lot about the Old Testament as anthropomorphism, you know, and he really wants to, to say, well, that's really the only way that you can understand the Old Testament properly. And at the time, we were kind of going, yeah, I don't know if we can go down the road with David here. You know what I mean? To, to, you know, to do too much anthropomorphizing or whatever seems, you know, start making arbitrary decisions. But ironically enough, it was David who sort of saved the Old Testament for me in, in many ways. But, but he did it by pointing me to the fathers, to, and particularly the East, the fathers from the East. And right, so right. David loves Origin of Alexandria because he, he loves Gregory of Nyssa. And right. Gregory of Nyssa is very much doing sort of orthodox version of origin than origin was doing but you know he loves gregory nissa who loved you know origin 
I started, you know, doing the heart, like kind of like doing the work of going back and going, you know, let me find out what David, because, you know, Dave, he has a great article. It's called Saint Origin. Um, you might want to look that one up. It's just called Saint Origin, where he's basically defending and he's saying it's just a damn shame that Origin was supposedly anathematized, you know, by the fifth. Yes. Idea. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And David is saying this is just a, a sham. The whole thing was a sham. And long story short, what Origin wants to say is that the Bible, the scripture, is an extension of the incarnation. So the word. Uh, all right. I mean, he's making this is a huge, you know, sort of um, thing that he's saying, right? That the word of God is an extension of the incarnation. So he wants to say that the Eucharist is an extension, you know, of the incarnation, that the body of Christ and the church is an extension of the incarnation, and specifically, you know, the Bible, right? He's saying, in other words, when you come to the scriptures, that you can encounter, the whole point is to encounter Christ. Which for me, I was like, "Whoa, that's that's cool!" Like in a sacramental, almost like a mystical way. Like you. This is origin. This is origin. Yeah. Okay. Like in, okay. in sort of a mystical way, you're you know you're encountering the cosmic Christ or whatever. He has three ways of, of explaining how the scripture works, he, and he uses the sort of the trichotomy, you know, the tripartite human fleshly, what origin calls the fleshly, and by that he just means like the purely historical method of interpretation. And so Origen doesn't want to necessarily throw it all out and just say none of this right. happened. He actually thinks that a lot of it did happen. But yeah. then he has the soul, the soulish interpretation, which is just like the moral. And then it's the spiritual. So what Paul is calling a theological reading of the Old Testament, Origen calls it a, the spiritual reading of the Old Testament. And he says that's the highest. And the reason why it's the highest oh. is because you're finding Jesus, you're encountering Jesus. So even in the Abel, in the Cain and Abel story, it's like, well, where's Jesus in that story? Well, he's with Abel. <laughs> he's the one who gets murdered, which is amazing. The Origen is having these insights long before somebody like, uh, you know, Rene Girard or something like this, right? right? right. He's saying that it's God's walking in the cool of the, of the garden. It's, you know, Jesus. Theophany. Yes, it's a theophany. That's right. And what was amazing about Origin, and I, I guess I just, it really is a gold mine. If, you, if, you, if you're interested in that type of thing. I've got you to just interpret it all for me. You can be my road to Emmaus guy. Yeah. Well, I that, read them. You just come along and show me. But there's nothing like, I'm just telling you, there's no, I, I'm having so much fun reading it for myself because the way that he brings the Old Testament alive, he says that the first prayer in the mention of the first mention of prayer in Scripture comes from Genesis 28. So here's a perfect example of how Origen would do exegesis. So he would say the first mention of prayer is whenever Jacob, you know, who's Israel, takes flight from Esau, which of course is like the enemy, you know, Edom. It's like they're the enemy of the Israelites. And so here's the prayer. It's short. Uh, if the Lord God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I will go and bring me again to my father's house in safety, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be for me God's house. Origen says the only way to understand, to even make this like intelligible for a Christian is to find Jesus in this prayer. Now remember, this is the first mention of prayer in the Old Testament. Right. So he, of course, he says that the way that I shall go is the way of Jesus, the way of righteousness. The, 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 to bring me again to my father's house in safety is union uh, with the soul with Christ. That the stone that Jacob builds there, that God puts there, is Jesus Christ himself. So that God's house, you know what I mean? So look it up there. It's Genesis 28, 20. Okay. But he's going to want to go all the way through the Old Testament. Mm. So like when you're reading the Psalms, it's a conversation between the Father and the Son, and then the Son and the Father and the Spirit. And he's saying anywhere you go in the Old Testament, look for Jesus because he's there. He even uses numbers like these weird, like there's this bush, you know, called sin. 
That's literally the translation. And then, you know, they had to walk, you know, past the, the, the bush of sin, you know, into the wilderness. Origin, in other words, is saying it's, it's allegorical. You have to read it spiritually. You have to read it allegorically. And so this was David Hart's gift to me because I didn't understand any of that. And I was like, well, wait a second. So, and so Origin's most famous commentary is on the Song of Solomon which he's saying that is all about, you know, Christ in the, Christ in, in the church. You know, the I prophet. thought it was just because he couldn't handle it. It was all about sex. No, he, no, no, he loves that. He loves it. <laughs> so the, all the wisdom, that, so the four types of literature in the Old Testament correspond to the gospel. So he's saying Matthew corresponds to law. You know, Mark corresponds to the apocalyptic. Luke Acts corresponds to the historical. And John. Right. Did right which it's like man that's freaking awesome and that to me in other words to make to say all that much more interesting than this sort of modern you know conversation literalism um, yeah well the literalism and just the modern sort of deconstruct um well, that's postmodern. yeah well yeah i mean arguing was there one angel or two angels and if it's wrong then we gotta throw the whole bible out or whatever you know it's like that's not interesting conversation that's where i wanted to go is that in other words, there is an early reading of Scripture that it was read not as some sort of authority unto itself, but the authority was in God and in Christ. And through the lens of that authority, then you, you place the authority of Scripture. And once you say that, just that simple thing, well, is, for example, killing people. What do we have on authority from Christ in regard to that? Oh, probably we shouldn't do that. Well, and Paul, and so what Origins, and this is really important, I left this part out. So what Origins going to say to that? Since we have the, and by the way, Origen was a, was, was a pacifist, right? And he was so because he believed in the Sermon on the Mount was actually yeah. what, uh, you know, Jesus meant it. So Tim, this is what's really cool. So he says, in light of the information that we have from Jesus Christ, the revelation that we have there, that God is nonviolent, we have to go back and reread Joshua in light of that. And what does that mean for Joshua? Well, what that means is, is that we have to allegorize it and say Joshua, of course, is Yeshua. That's what his name is. It's <laughs> and so whenever Origen's doing his, his, uh, his commentary on Joshua, he just calls Joshua Jesus. He mm. says the enemy is sin, you know, the passions. And the promised right. land is your soul's union with God. And so you have to allegorize it in a way where, you, where Jesus is going to come in and just utterly destroy the enemies of Israel. But the enemies, of course, are allegorized as sin right. and death. And, so, and they're scaling these mountains and they're doing <laughs> these different things. Origin wants to hold you by the hand and take you through there and show you what the spiritual meaning mm. behind these texts. It's, 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 it's so critical, I think, to our understanding. Yeah, yeah. No, that, Is that, that what sense. the tragedy has been that so many people have had a view of a violent God. People come by it honestly. Like if you're taught this is who God was and well again it all ends up on penal substitution. God requires sacrifice. So the whole René Girard program, the whole Michael Harden program, is what's called an anti-sacrificial read or a non-sacrificial read. I think Michael Harden says the entire Old Testament can be summed up into um, prophets versus the priests. Prophets saying, you know, you guys created all this. It's not my will. And, and the New Testament, he says, sums up as either you're for Paul or against Paul. That's kind of the Douglas Campbell reading of, of, the, of the apostolic documents.
But there was just this sense in which people really struggle with, they don't want to be Marcionites. They don't want to throw the whole Old Testament out. And again, at the same time, it's this idea that, you know, I mean, about the two really big issues in the church today, hell and the LGBTQ, you know, the whole question of that. Um, so you get back to the whole hell question. But of course, the whole question that always comes up is, there's got to be justice. The people I follow is kind of like, no, there doesn't. Because forgiveness says whether you killed six million Jews or killed one Jew with your heart, as Jesus said, if you even look on them and want to murder them, you know, rock out of your brother, you're guilty. It's always, Hitler always shows up in these, in these conversations. And, you know, what kind of restitution would he have to make? And so now, of course, in our whole court system, we have restorative justice. So, you know, he can sit through and meet each person face to face, all six million, and apologize and say he's sorry. And, you know, and I kind of thought, I don't want to have to do that. My heart's just like Mr. Hitler's. I don't want to have to make restitution to all the people I've you know, heard over the years. You know, and I was saying that semi facetiously. Hopefully, I've worked hard in this life to to make those things right. But there may be very well be people on the other side that are going to be unhappy with, mm-hmm. with you know, feel that we need to have a, a time of restitution and or uh, restorative justice. So all of that said is it's very easy to be mean, nasty, cruel when your God is like that. When God doesn't forgive without killing somebody or something, then we can be the same way. So the whole thing is all kind of bound up with this very, very pagan view of God. And so he wants to kill us, but we offer him Jesus. Here, take Jesus, take Jesus. And now we have all his righteousness transferred to us. Away we go. A lot of people, even though they don't even identify as Calvinists or Reformed people, still have that kind of theology. As I'm wrapping my head around how, especially in the East, in my opinion, that these guys were reading the scriptures, it's not that we just don't want to throw away the Old Testament. It, that it's <laughs> we need it. You know, what I'm saying it's critical. It's crucial. You, you because in light of the revelation that we have in Christ, you can understand. You can reinterpret the whole Jonah in the in the belly of the great fish story or whatever. Right? It's like, well, that's all about Christ. You know, that's all about Jesus in the in the in the belly of death and uh, whenever he, uh, or well, Jesus creates that typology, doesn't he? When he says, "As Jonah is in the whale for three, so I will too." Yeah. Absolutely. That's so Origen says, first of all, Jesus teaches in parable. He teaches allegorically. He takes these types in the Old Testament and applies them to himself. So let's use his method of interpretation, you know, and, 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 and work through the Old Testament and actually use it so that wisdom is personified as a, you know, wisdom is Jesus. Paul says Jesus is the wisdom of God. So when you go back and, and you read Proverbs, understand that wisdom is Jesus Christ. You know, the wisdom of the Lord is to do this and do that. The beginning of wisdom is, uh, you know, it's like, well, that's Jesus all the way through. And so it's not that just like, oh, we don't want to chuck it. It's like, no, we need to re- go back and reread all of that in a spiritual way and understand how Christ is there ready to meet us, to encounter us. Part of this, you know, you've got to set Christ in a particular context. And of course, Judaism, the Old Testament, does that for us. And so part of understanding who Christ is, is to recognize how he's interrelated to this context. My own reading, you know, the allegorical reading that 
sometimes it's not clear what the controlling factor in it is. But again, I think this relates to a Hegelian reading. For me, Hegel is the great evil genius. Hegel himself gives us a reading of Genesis in which I think he's correct, that there is an understanding that flows from a particular form of knowing, a particular kind of understanding, and that's what he calls the dialectic. And of course, for Hegel, there is only the dialectic, but I think, of course, Hegel is correct that for human beings, the dialectic, identity through difference, the knowledge of good and evil, that is inherently violent, is then the deep grammar out of which human society flows. And Jewish religion and Jewish culture is always weaving itself in and out. There is an accommodation, but there's also a resistance in the Old Testament. And so a a simple thing like the sacrifice in the temple well, there, you can read that, and this is where a Girardian reading may, in other words, Girard never really departed from the understanding that Judaism is just part of another sacrificial religion. There is a reading of the two goats and the temple in which we understand that the point of the temple is a cleansing from death, that the point of the sacrifices was to represent what will occur in Christ, and that is a life that is given over to God. It is the taking up of the cross. In other words, it's not the sacrifice of the other, it's not even death, that God doesn't want death, but what he wants or what is desired in the temple is that the source of life is God. Christ then restores us. He cleanses the temple. What is the temple itself representative of? The temple is a microcosmos. It is a picture of the cosmos. What is the priestly system and the sacrifice? It is a picture of a world that is cleansed of violence and death. That is a reading of the two goats, you know, that the, the goat that's sent into the wilderness, the one that, in fact, is not given over to God, is the one that is the bearer of sin. Sin and death, then, are sent out from the temple. So that clearly the Old Testament, there is a tension at work in the Old Testament. You see it in Jeremiah. When Jeremiah talks about the sacrifices, he said, in the voice of God, I never required sacrifices. I never sought sacrifices. And so how do we resolve that tension? Well, I think we do then recognize that it's the same story that's unfolding for us in which there is combating then this dialectical, violent identity through difference that gives rise then to the first death. Why does Cain kill Abel? The logic behind the slaying of Abel is the logic behind every murder. It's always this identity in which we would gain life through death, through sacrifice, sacrificial religion. Of course, for Hegel, that's all there is. There's only this dialectic. But what I would say about Scripture and what I would say about the Bible as a whole and the authority of the church and Jesus is that what is being given rise to is an alternative to this human frame of knowing. And that is we can have access then to 
a knowledge or an understanding that, not, that is not dialectical. This is the great conversation. I mean, this is higher critical method is directly tied to C.F. Bauer, who was a direct, he was a student under Hegel. And all that he is doing, you know, this is modern criticism, but it's also fundamentalism. They're all doing the same thing. They're all doing Hegel and saying, well, there is this dialectic. Is it Paul over and against Peter? Is it, you know, the Gospels over and against one another? That is then an early modernist reading in which they've imagined that Hegel is the key to unlocking the Bible itself. And my point is that Hegel himself recognized there is a kind of flow of knowledge that is being undone in the church. To get beyond violence, to get beyond the accommodation to, to that, that human violence, it is established then in and through the peace of Christ. And so it's not to say that all of this has arisen as a byproduct of human violence. In other words, that's the, the Girardian reading in a sense, just gives us the, the kind, of, I agree with the, the idea that sacrificial religion then creates the sacred, and there is that mode of knowing. But of course, I think what's happening in the Bible is an undoing of this sacrificial religion, that Jesus then is an undoing. But I think that in a sense that we can go back and we can read much of the Old Testament also then. Certainly there is the tension between a, a God who delights in blood and violence and the God of peace. <laughs> but I think that we can resolve that at a deep level. The deeper we go with the grammar of who Christ is, I think the greater insight it gives us into a reading. And not, I'm not saying I do away with all the, uh, you know, the, I don't know what to do with a lot of it either, but I think at least there is the beginning of an alternative deep grammar to not just reading the Old Testament, but to reading Scripture as a whole, that something is taking place, and to get at that, we need to, of course, get beyond the whole propositional sort of and it's, right. not, and it's not just reading the Scripture, right? It's, it's what we said on the podcast. It's, it's really reading reality. Um, seeing Jesus in the, you know, I, I started reading Genesis again. I said, well, it's been a while since I've read through Genesis, and I got to the ark. It's like, well, I don't care if there was a flood. Maybe there was a flood, maybe there wasn't. I really I really don't care. But what's really cool to me is, though, what's the arc of the type of? Is it a type of Jesus, Mary, you know, the church? In other words, that's how, you know, Origin at least wants you to read the scriptures, but not just the scriptures. It's like you can go through, I think, with, with what Paul is describing and saying, you know, like the East, you know, they, they just teach that the logos of God infuses everything. You know, the all-being, this is David Bentley Hart, right? The all-being, all-beauty, all-goodness, all-truth, all-justice is infused with the logos of God. It has its alpha and omega in God himself. And so whether you read the scriptures or the tradition or science or even other world religions, and there's, there's truth there. It's like, well, that's God's logos. Back to one of the things you're saying, though, Paul, particularly related to Hegel. First of all, I'm very interested in how Hegel became so widespread and how he's become kind of the whipping boy but for this idea of, of, of the dialectic because one of the things Gerard does and maybe this is pushed back against what you said or maybe you're pushing back against Gerard is he talks about parsing the scripture and different there's two voices there's the voice of religion and there's the voice of revelation and 
we're able to discern which one is going on. Now, one of the things my Michael Harden does is he says, if you take that passage in the book of Hebrews, where it says, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, because the blood of Abel cries out for vengeance from the ground. The blood of Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. So one is no retaliation, no recompense. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Divorce, you know, separating intent from action. Whereas Abel is no. So is that being dialectic by parsing scripture out between that which reveals the loving God and that which reveals the angry God? Is that Hegelian? And if that's the case, I'm a Hegelian. <laughs> this is the, Just, the, you know what I mean. In other words, what you get, unfortunately, in in Hegel, is the idea that the dialectic you require both sides of the dialectic. Uh, yeah, I don't require. I'm rejecting one. Right, and that's not Hegelian. Okay. So with Hegel, you need good and evil, because right. the evil reveals the good, and the good reveals the evil. The one inheres in the other. And so there yeah. really aren't two separate things, good and evil. Ah, uh, gotcha. There is one thing. And so we can talk about, I see. we can have Jesus and salvation apart from sin. Sin is not a necessity. Evil is not a necessity for who Jesus is. It doesn't inform us about who Jesus is. It certainly tells us we understand to a degree then the significance of the death of Christ, I think, mm -hmm. because Absolutely. it is a result of sin, right? not in the way it's traditionally talked about, but because a sacrifice is required in order that the nation would be saved. And so uh, even in Gerard, then, I don't, Gerard's not Hegelian in that he doesn't believe that the violent sacrifice is necessary. Yeah, you're right that there is in Scripture, there may be both things unfolding simultaneously so that there is a tension. But uh, for Gerard, he's not bound by the dialectic. Right. How, so just a question, how did Hegel become so pervasive? Like, how, like you're kind of seeing him as this really key figure that sort of, this is in the edge of the modern reading. Like, how did it become such a powerful punch? I can only begin to approach that. I think that's a wonderful question because, first of all, I think he hit upon a truth. Mm. He, he hit upon a truth. Hegel just tells us about everything. Here's the history of everything, the history of, of science, the history of knowledge. That, so the archaeology that you're going to get in postmodernism is really Hegelian, you know, Foucault and Derrida. Right. They're all really on a Hegelian project. And so Hegel, once you, once you understand what, this is Derrida, you know, the whole notion of identity through difference. He says, well, I'm just doing Hegel. But, of course, he's doing Hegel with the understanding that Hegel had not arrived at the truth. Right. And so Hegel is placed in a key period, you know, that he is, that Immanuel Kant has kind of been the brilliant thinker, and Hegel is saying about, many people point to Immanuel Kant, and say, well, what Kant gave us was then the insight to the fact that there is a failure of human knowledge, that there's the phenomena and the noumena, and, you know, you can't never the twain shall meet. And yep. Hegel comes along and says, yep, and that's the truth. The phenomena and the noumena is not just a characteristic of Kant. 
but he's saying that's a characteristic of human knowing. And so around Hegel, there gathers, you know, the key thinkers that will flow into Western thought that, uh, of course, Marxism and uh, the, the left-wing Hegels and the right, uh, Hegelians and the right-wing Hegelians, that out of German idealism flows then the thought that is really going to overtake the, the modern period. This is where Karl Barth enters into the scene. Because Karl Barth, of course, is reading uh, Romans from a kind of dialectical. He's going to say, well, I departed from the dialectic. But the question is, yeah, but did he? the degree to which he agrees and doesn't agree, you know. And so it's never clear that Karl Barth, who is perhaps the premier theologian of the 20th century, if not uh, continue on into the 21st century, he's really going back and forth between these two thinkers, Schleiermacher and Hegel, so that the, it's not a, an objective thing. It is that we're trying to extract ourselves and read reality through the lens of Christ, but the reality that we're going to encounter then is then in and through the, the cultural understanding that we're, we're filtering through the lens of Christ. Right. So, so, so here's my question then. Can we make a connection between Hegel, this dialectic of, of good and evil, and Reformed theology? Or is that just a coincidence that Reformed uh, theologians have a, a God who's both good and evil? Well, you understand that Hegel is working in Germany, as a Lutheran, he's taking Luther's phrase, God died on a cross. And Hegel says, that's exactly right. And that is the truth of who God is. That God has taken death up into himself, and the historical development, the full realization of who God is, is unfolding historically in Christ so that the culmination of that unfolding of God's coming, coming to his own fullness is to be found in Christ. That is, that who God is is an unfolding reality. Then Friedrich Nietzsche comes along and says, yes, God died on a cross. God is dead. So, yeah, it, it's very much tied into the Protestant Reformation. But I'm in love with all the God is dead theology, Bonhoeffer and <laughs> I guess uh, I'm just treading on interesting waters. I would prefer Nietzsche over Hegel and Luther. Because what is Christianity? Christianity is a, a naming of the idols. And the philosophical understanding that's, out, that's flowing then through Hegel, through Western philosophical understanding, it is the reification of, an, uh, of human knowing, of human thought. It is the idolatry of the day. And so partly what Friedrich Nietzsche means when he says God is dead, he, he does think that's inclusive of Christianity, but I just think that's a misunderstanding on right, Nietzsche's part. Right. That the God of the philosopher is not the God of the Bible. That's very interesting stuff, Paul. It's, it's helpful. I'm kind of trying to get my head around it because, of course, idolatry is a big issue also with a lot of the kind of some of the readings that I've been doing by this guy by the name of Sandor Goodhart, who's a Jewish Girardian scholar. But So it's the anti-sacrificial, the anti-idolatry critique. And I like that, thinking of Christianity as a naming of the idols. And, of course, now with, the, with, with this biblicism, well, that's just another one of the idols, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's taken us down the same the same roads. It is just the Antichrist, right? But, cool. uh, but Matt shouldn't let us say that. Well, Matt was calling America evil today. 
manifest destiny, baby. <laughs> I don't. I think what I'm saying is not a departure from what Matt was saying. In other words, I think that that there is a kind of revisionist understanding that we need to go back to and recover the reading of the early church fathers, that what Matt is describing in Gregory of Nyssa, and in other words, they were all pacifists. It's not that, oh, this guy was, oh, no, they were all pacifists. Wow, yeah, yeah. And of course, the departure is slow in coming in an Augustinian notion that arises with just war. But in other words, the departure is very clear. The necessity of violence is once again admitted in, what you've departed from is the notion of peace that is a form of knowing. There's a way of knowing that is the, the way of Christ that is peaceable, and there's right. the way of knowing that is inherently violent that will always make violent a necessity, that in the formulas of Paul, you know, we all, we've all heard this, well, we have to do this particular evil. Good may come. That good may come. And that's always the justification for, you know, killing certain people or going into war or treating somebody violently or oppressing certain classes of people. Right. And so that, that is a way of knowing that out of which there, I believe there's no escape. My reading of religion, I don't think that religion per se or culture, you know, religion is not really separate, that that we only have cultures that are violent. <laughs> and we only have religions then that allow for or give rise to violence. And that Christ intercedes into all of those equally. Which is not to just put them all on the same plane. I think there are degrees. There is goodness and truth and beauty that we can see in many forms of thought and many places. But I think the fullness of that goodness, truth, and beauty is going to cohere only in the person of Jesus Christ. And we need both names. We need the historical Jesus tied to the cosmic Christ. And that's the significance that Matt was describing. What is the Logos? I think it's there in the early church fathers. What they're doing is saying, well, the Logos is Jesus. It is the gospel. It is that, it is that word. I was going to say that if you look at Hegel, you know, God be with you if you want to read through the phenomenology of spirit. It is a very difficult work. I've, I mean, I, I read through it, and it was like one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, but it's, it, you know, violence is right there in the beginning. You know, there's the nothing, you know, there's this sort of tension between the nothingness, uh, you know, and of being, and there's this sort of uh, tarrying with the negative, he calls it, you know, and it's, it's, it really is, you know, he's doing a whole history of knowledge. He's saying, let me explain to you the history of how we know, you know, everything. <laughs> and it's like, he's actually really, it's, it's, it's tremendous, like the project that he's doing. But as you guys were talking, I started thinking, it's like, you know, I really do think that the East avoided a lot of this mess. I really do. Because it's like a lot of this for me has been a working back. I, my introduction to Christ was through the reformed tradition. Okay. And so, so it's like, I'm, I'm, I, I had a really deep sort of hole to climb out of. You know what I mean? Once you say, okay, well, it's not the way of Luther. It's not the way of Calvin. It's not the way of Hegel. It's not the way of, Freud, you know, it's, it's this, it, there really is something happening there in Germany, but it's happening in the West. It's happening in the Western tradition. You know, the Reformation that, that is born out of the Catholic, you know, the Latin West, which of course them, who they, they themselves broke off 
from the East. And what I'm getting at is in the Eastern Church is saying something very important. They're saying, they're calling themselves Eastern Orthodox, meaning it. <laughs> like saying, hey, really, what we're saying is, is this is the straight, you know, Orthodox, you know, ortho, you know, orthodont, you know, you go to the orthodontist and it's like you get your teeth straightened out. You know what I'm saying? It's like, that's what they're saying. This is the straight teaching. This is the, this is orthodoxy. And as you depart from it, the further away that you get from, you know, what, has been established by now you don't have to buy this but this is what they're saying that you know what's already been established by the early church in and through the first seven councils through the fathers uh the further that you get away from that the further you you know you find yourself you know going the way of hegel and then through hegel to through nietzsche and through you know then into zizak and all these other people right so it's like it, there really is a trajectory if you want to call it that that i'm finding it's like yeah but the more that i feel like i can i've had to wade through the waters man to get through there's a lot of stuff man and and, and protestantism you know what i mean that you really do have to kind of battle through i mean hegel is a genius man i mean this guy's got a colossal intellect you know and if it weren't for kierkegaard for me i might have you know just been taken you know taken by him or whatever you know but the church's teaching on these things really is a light it really is a guide and and, and it's like it's easy to be taken in by error you know this heresy you know the the, the error luth you know orthodoxy just teaches that it's a it's like a twice removed error because it's coming out of the latin you know the roman church that had already broken with with orthodoxy and then there's another break with luther and reform tradition and now there's something like forty-seven thousand denominations i just saw the other day it's when i thought it was 30 some guy said it's forty-seven thousand, and it's like okay well it is shattered into forty-seven thousand different pieces and, you know, and there might be some truth and little pieces here and there and all the different pieces, but uh, we have come very far and it's hard to find your way back whenever you have these monsters, you know, these intellectual giants like Hegel um, and these other people who are, of course, reacting, you know, these guys, you know, Nietzsche. They're all, they're all in sort of that German context. It's kind of crazy how that little, you know, Germany has produced so many great genius. I mean, just genius after genius after genius is coming out of there. And they're all sort of, you know, at least in that modern and postmodern period, coming out of the world that's just deeply, deeply being informed by Martin Luther and his departure from the, the orthodox teachings of the church. I think we can make a mistake in reading this history. When I say that Hegel's a genius, I don't mean that he's a genius that's captured us all. I mean that what he's describing is a reality that most people live under, whether they know of Hegel or not. So that he's outlining, you know, it's really Hegel that gives us Freud. It's really the opening to a psychoanalytic understanding. And of course, what I would say is, yeah, but what Hegel is doing, and this is what Zizek and Lacan are saying, Zizek is, by the way, Hegelian. He would say he's the true follower of Hegel. And what Zizek is saying is, yes, but what you're getting in Hegel is what's already there. Paul is unfolding. I think that's correct. Not that these guys have captured us, but that they have tapped into a truth that we are already captured by and a frame of reference in which we're already working. So, yeah, we have to overcome Hegel, but we have to overcome the dialectic. I mean, I agree with that, Paul, and I, I think I understand what you're saying, but 
they have captured us too in the sense and i'm open to correction here but you know the dialectic and all these different things are being applied to all sorts of different you know uh, economic theory political theory religious theory marxism i i do think that you you always said you know that if you don't do the thinking someone will do it for you and it's like and and so on the one hand i think you're right that they're articulating something that we're all part of that they're also though that they're that the, this thought this form of thought is extremely powerful and and, and secular in quotes in, in, in as much as it informs how our world in, in Hegel's words you know is how the sort of the world spirit uh, moves throughout the age. Let me let me put it this way: that I think what somebody like Hegel has done is they've put their hand upon the gears in the engine room of human thought. And somebody like Marx comes along and realizes, oh, we can move these gears. We can change the world. That's actually a Christian notion, we can change the world. Nobody ever talked that way before Christ because the world was a given. But like with Gerard, what's opened up with Christianity is this violent possibility of literally revolutionizing everything, changing the world. But, of course, it can be changed for evil. And I think that's what's unfolded in the 19th and 20th century. So there is the sense that these guys have had a huge impact. But my point is the reason they've had an impact is they've put their hands upon the levers that actually, the the levers of power and control and thought, and they've moved those levers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.